Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolia's First. To learn more, visit m1bc.org. So, when I was in my early 20s, uh, I thought it'd be a really good idea to try to take up a career in boxing, okay? Poor time to start. Normally, you start when you're like six. That's what I decided was at like 20. Uh, I had been training for maybe a year at that point, and the gym that I trained at decided they were going to host a fight night, right? Which is in the fight world is what you call a smoker match. It's not sanctioned. You don't get a record for it. It's just some groups of people from different gyms in the area. They'll come together uh, and they'll have a fight night and box. And so I had been training for maybe 10 or 12 weeks, getting ready for it. And uh, they call me probably three weeks out. I'm in Galveston with some friends. They call me up and they're like, hey, Daniel, uh, we've got you signed up as a heavyweight uh, and we don't have anybody else that signed up for boxing except one other guy who's a heavyweight. And I said, okay. And they said, but he's, he's a heavyweight. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm 230, which is pretty big for a heavyweight in boxing, right? And so I'm like, well, how big is he? And they're like, he's 320. Yeah. Yeah. 320. That's 90 pounds if you haven't done the math yet. That's a lot of mass behind a fist. And so I'm like, oh, and I knew who it was because I'd seen him around the gym, and I'm like, oh, okay. So they're like, do you want to take the fight? And I'm like, yes, because I've been training. I'm taking the fight. Like, I'm not backing out. So we make the thing happen three weeks. We come to fight night. Everybody does their thing. Uh, and so they call me out, and I'm pretty pumped up. You know, you're going out to get in a ring and, and box somebody. And I'm pretty pumped up, get out. Get in the ring, I'm looking across, the dude is gigantic. And I'll be honest, what you expect with a very large man is that they're going to come at you just bum-rushing, right? So I'm like, all right, move out, swing left, keep the jab, stay on my feet, I'll just run him down, right? That's my whole hope. And so the bell rings, we move out, we start moving around, and this dude wants to box. He doesn't want to go crazy. And so I'm like, all right, I'm faster, son. Like, what are you thinking? So I'm kind of moving, jabbing, and moving out, and he's jabbing. I'll short rib him, and it's going really well for about 35 seconds because I've settled in, right? He just wants to box, and so he's kind of maneuvering, and then suddenly, I don't know if I hit him, and he just got mad. I don't know what happened, but this dude charged me like a rhinoceros, and I didn't, I mean, straight into the corner, right? I, could, I didn't think to move anywhere, went straight backwards in the corner, and this 320-pound man is just laying haymaker after haymaker on my head. And all I can do is pin up and tuck in like this. And I'm telling you, I mean, he is going to town for the next two minutes and 25 seconds, nonstop. And all I'm thinking as I'm seeing white flash after white flash from my brain being turned upside down is I'm thinking, if I can just make it through this round, I'll have him because he'll be exhausted. It's what Ali called the rope-a-dope, except that wasn't actually my plan. It just kind of got me there. And so, I, I, but I'm telling listen, this guy punched so hard that I promise you, I would be in the process of falling over, and then he would just hit me from the other side and stand me back up. And so... I take a whole beating for a first round. I get in the corner, I sit down with my coach, and I'm like, I can't take that again. Like that dude punches so hard, I've never been hit like that in my life. With my gloves on my head and headgear, he's concussing me with every punch. And so 
My coach says, I get it, I get it, man, but listen, look at him. And I look across the ring, and that dude is wheezing. So I'm like, I feel good now. All right. So the bell rings round two, and I stand up. And listen, you don't understand until you've been there, but being punched is so incredibly exhausting. And so I go to stand up, and I'm like, oh. And so I'm trying to move forward, and I don't have any energy at all, but I had one thing in mind. He's a big guy, so he stands like this, right? So I'm like, I'm attacking the gut. And so I'd move in, I'd jab high, he'd lift, and I'd just, I mean, it's everything that I had for what I had left in me, I would punch him straight in the stomach as hard as I could. And you'd hear him, oh. And then we'd move out, and I'm like, that exhausted me so bad, please don't hit me. And I'd come, I got it a few times. And so finally, we sit down after the second round, and my coach, listen, this is just the reality of the fight at this point. This dude has owned me so far, other than a few punches I got in round two. So my coach is like, listen, you knock him out, or you lose this thing. I'm like, well, I didn't come here to lose this thing. So I get up, and I'm exhausted, and I'm hurting, and we come out, and I'm kind of trying to bounce, but I got no energy but I noticed something. I'm jabbing a little bit here and there, and I realize this dude is backing up from me. I'm like, that's it, man. I'm headhunting now. So I get him back. He doesn't know his way around the ring. I get him in the corner, and as soon as I get him in the corner, I catch him with a hard right, and he, he rattles a little bit. Now, this, this dude is hard to knock out, and so he rattles a little bit, but where he makes a mistake is he grabs the ropes, so both hands down, and so at that point, I'm like, I'm not guarding my face anymore, so I'm, I pull a him. I'm throwing my hands, and I, listen, not to toot my own horn, I have large fists, I punch pretty hard, uh, I probably hit this guy full, perfect, solid connection at least 12 times on the chin from different directions before he finally fell down. He hit the canvas, all of my exhaustion gone, and I am screaming and jumping, and all of my friends are going, and I am, I am celebrating that I got this knockout and that I won this fight, right? Because I just got beat down by this dude. And it's funny how I celebrate the victory so much. But when I look back, even the night of, man, you know how many what-ifs were in that equation? What if, just for a split second, he would have hit me hard enough to one glove drop? Because I promise you, if my glove would have done this and he would have made contact, it was over. What if he would have just thrown an uppercut? What if, what if, what if, what if my legs wouldn't have lasted through the first round? What if I didn't even make it through the first round? How humiliating. What if? We're talking about hope today. We're closing the series on delivered of what God has gifted us with, what he's delivered to us through Jesus Christ. And we've talked about grace and we've talked about truth and we've talked about love and what a perfect closing to get into hope. But here's what I don't want for any of you in this room. Listen to what I'm fixing to say. I do not want you to leave this room thinking of hope in the same way that I had hope in that boxing ring that it's a light at the end of the tunnel that hopefully I get to. That hopefully this wrong thing doesn't happen and I utterly just collapse. I don't want you to leave here with a misconception of what hope is, where hope ultimately, and and let's just be honest, I don't don't necessarily want to talk to you about hope in 
your family situation or your career or your this or that because I want to talk to you about hope when it comes to you and your relationship with the God in heaven and your right standing with him. Hope to a level that if you were facing death today, if you were on your deathbed today, you could move forward with confidence because hope from a biblical standpoint is not a crossing of the fingers and a holy hoping for the best. And it's funny how many people I could talk to in this room and I could say, hey, are you a Christian? And you'd go, yeah. And I'd go, so you know you're going to heaven. And you'd go, well, I'm trying. I'm like, man, you, you're just totally misunderstanding what hope really is. For you, hope is, well, I'm trying my best, so I really hope that I get in. I hope that when I walk in, God says, well done, good and faithful servant. And what I want you to know about hope is that hope biblically, is a very, very, very confident assurance. It is a confident assurance. And so my question then is if you were to stand in front of God right now and give him an account of your life, what would the verdict be? Biblical hope is not hopeful thinking because the reality of hopeful thinking, that is a very shakable thing, right? That is very easily broken. You can be a very hopeful thinker like we talked about two weeks ago. You can be a very moralistic person, but it only takes one mess up to scuff your shell, right? It only takes one thing to throw the whole pattern off. And so where's your hope then when it's only built on self? Ultimately, what makes hope a confident assurance is the foundation of it. And so here's our big idea today. Our big idea today is this. Unshakable hope is determined by the object of our hope. Unshakable hope is determined by the object of our hope. In other words, if your hope is fixated on something that is not unshakable then your hope will quickly crumble. And so what I want today is that when you leave this room, your hope is fixated on the one who is utterly unshakable, unbreakable, and unchanging in every way. I want to give you a solid anchor, an object for your hope. In order to do so, I want to identify biblical hope versus false hope, right? So our modern conception of hope in comparison to what biblical faith and hope really looks like. And to do so, we're going to look at the Apostle Peter. Okay, uh, If you don't know a lot about Peter, let me set some context for you really quickly as to the character of the Apostle Peter. Peter, as a disciple in his earthly ministry with Jesus, uh, he was the guy that was always trying to prove something. And I don't know if you get around those people a lot, like they really need a lot of affirmation, and sometimes it's kind of exhausting. Uh, but Peter is literally the guy that just feels like he always has to show that he knows something that's right or what's going on. To the extent that Matthew chapter 18, right? Peter comes to Jesus to talk about forgiveness. And when he does, he says, Lord, it's, it's like a setup question. Lord, if my brother offends me, how many times do I have to forgive him? And I can almost see the smirk and the smile and the little wink. 
Seven times, Lord? Because Peter knows, according to the Old Testament, seven's this holy number, right? And so Peter's like, look at my numerology. I can apply forgiveness to the number seven, and I'm right. And so he thinks he's got this spiritual insight into things, and Jesus is like, Peter, I'll tell you the truth. If your brother offends you 70 times in a day and comes to you and asks for forgiveness, you forgive him 70 times seven. You don't understand how forgiveness works. There doesn't come a point where you just draw the line. Peter's so confident that he knows everything there is to know. If you know the account of Jesus walking on water, the disciples are in a boat in the middle of the night, right? And then they see Jesus walking to them on the water, and they're terrified because they think it's a ghost. And I'll be honest, for a long time I didn't understand that until one night I was on a boat in the lake at night, and you go, yeah, man, that'd be free. I mean, it's just a silhouette. You can't see anything. And so Jesus is walking to him on water by night, and they all freak out and think it's a ghost. And Jesus speaks to him, says, don't fear, it's me. And Peter, go figure. Peter, first foot forward, he says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out to you on the water. Jesus says, well, then come on. So Peter, in all of his confidence, steps out and walks on the water. And I mean, it is that moment where Peter is shining, right? But then he looks and he sees the waves and the winds and he starts to, to freak out and panic. And he sinks. And Jesus, he, he, obviously Peter couldn't swim because he cries out, Lord, save me, I'm perishing. So Jesus pulls him up out of the water and he says, why did you fear, O oh, you of little faith? You see, you're starting to see where the problem is. Where's Peter's faith? Peter's faith is in his ability. Peter's hope is that he can do it. And Jesus says, man, your hope is fixed on the wrong thing, and that's why you sank. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus and the disciples come up on a mountain kind of by themselves, and Jesus starts asking a question. He said, hey, who, who are people saying that I am? And all of them are like, well, some say this and some say that, and Peter, man, or Jesus just... I feel like it's like this dead look in their eyes. He says, yeah, but who do you say that I am? Peter responds, this time by revelation of God. Says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And J Jesus commends him. He says, Peter, this blessed are you. This isn't something people taught you. This is revelation given to you by my father. You know, it's funny. In that moment, Peter's like, I... Yes, like he's feeling it, man. I'm finally, I'm on board. I'm rocking it. Jesus, he's proud of me. And then in the same chapter, Jesus starts to tell of what's going to happen to him when he'll be betrayed, given over to death and crucified. You know what Peter does? Peter pulls him aside because he's strong and mighty. Now he finally gets it. Peter pulls Jesus aside. This isn't happening to you. You need to stop talking like that. You guys remember how Jesus responds? Get behind me, Satan. You're concerned with the things of this world, not with the things of God. Now where does Peter's confidence go? Jesus just said, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. You see, Peter has misplaced confidence. He's got misplaced confidence. Because his confidence or his hope is in his ability to perform. 
And we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 22. Jesus and the disciples are wrapping up a conversation on who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, right? Who's going to have the biggest scepter and the biggest crown and the best throne? And Jesus says, listen, any of you who wants to be the greatest, just know that you're going to be the servant of all, right? To be the highest in the kingdom means you have to be the lowest. And then it's funny because it's almost like Jesus is talking to him, and then it's like he just turns and fixates on Peter. And this is what he says, starting in verse 32. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you and even to die with you. But Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times having even known me. Jesus almost alerted Peter, Simon, Simon. Satan's asked to sift you like wheat. What does that even look like? Well, if you know the story of Peter, this is going to be a temptation for one of two things. Peter's either going to choose his own life, or he's going to choose allegiance to Christ. One of the two. Now, Jesus has already called it. Right? Hey, Satan's asked to sift you like wheat, but Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And at that point, what we want to hear is, and so now you'll be valiant, right? But what does Jesus say? So when you've repented and turned to me again, strengthen the brothers. Jesus tells him, man, I'm praying for your faith, but you're going to fall first. My prayer is that your fall isn't permanent. And so when you have turned to me again, not if, when you've turned to me again, Peter rebuttals, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison for you. I'm ready to go to death with you. Oh, how often we want to sound so radical. How often I've thought the very same thing. I remember years ago when this conclusion first dawned on me that I'm going, man, I just need to go like somewhere overseas where they hold a knife to my throat if I if I, you know, deny Jesus, and, and, and then I, it, it dawns on me in that moment. I'm like, man, moment of honesty, you know, at the time, I'm like, I, I can't even keep my allegiance to Jesus if I'm alone with my phone. And I think I'm going to keep allegiance with a knife to my neck? How often we think we're so strong for Christ, just like Peter, I'm ready to go to death with you. Jesus says, you'll deny knowing me three times before the rooster even crows. You know what's funny about this? What Jesus doesn't do, he doesn't say, Satan's asked to sift you, but Peter, you're strong and your name is warrior and you've got this, Peter. He doesn't do that. 
He doesn't plead to the inner strength of the character of Peter. Why? Because Peter already thinks he's got this. That's the problem. Peter thinks he's strong. And do you know what happens when you think that you're strong? You don't need Christ so much anymore. The greatest problem for us, especially in our culture, is that we just want to think that we're strong enough. We don't realize how big of an idol that is. Because now we've put self-strength in the place of Christ, to whom we should be weak so that we can have his strength. But man, how often do we just want someone to tell us, no, you've got this. No, you're strong enough. How often, and what a shame, that in the churches, people come along and they abandon gospel preaching. For what? To make people feel good about themselves. To make people feel like they're strong in themselves. To make people feel like they just need to be a nice person and a good moral being. How often do we just want people to tell us that if we just resort to ourselves, if we just have these old anthems and these tough talks that we can, we can call ourselves to action and be stronger. And I'm just going to be honest, man. I remember, I remember when these realizations hit me, and I remember people trying to tell me, you're great, and you're this, and you're that, and you can do it. And I remember going... I'm the problem. Why are you telling me I can fix me? All I do is ruin me. And is it not the same for you? How often do you want to be your own doctor? Your own healing physician? When you're the one that got you into this place from the get-go. Right? How often we ignore our sickness... trying to resort to self-healing and ten ways to be a better you. That we end up failing anyway. And then all hope is gone once again. Until we can find something else that makes us feel better for a short season. Until we fail again. And I'm just going to be honest, man. I know, listen, I know some of you, you don't like the idea of being told that you're, you're unworthy or that you can't earn heaven, or that you can't put God in your debt. I get how that's problematic. I get how we can be an enemy to that style of thinking. But let me remind you something. Uh, what does it imply? If I say, hey, you're worthy of God's love, what does that imply? It implies that you've done something to earn it, which also implies that you can do something to ruin it. To say you're worthy of God's love implies that you don't need grace. But according to Scripture, we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. So if you're worthy, where exactly is your hope? It's in you. It's in what you're able to do for God in hopes that you can purchase your way into that kingdom. And ultimately what it is, the little bitty power trip that we have, that we put God in our debt so when we get to those gates, he has to let us in. That's not the gospel. That's not hope. That's not biblical. 
If you remember the story, later on, sure enough, the soldiers come. They go to take Jesus captive. I think Peter's still in this prove-it phase, and so when they go to take him captive, Peter pulls out his sword and cuts uh, a guard's ear off, remember? He's ready for war. I can commend him on that. But if you notice, his hope still isn't in Christ, because what happens as soon as Christ says, no, Peter, that's not how this is going down. They're going to take me captive. That's what's going to happen. Peter abandons him. He runs the opposite direction. And then interestingly, he gets to a place where he can still see what's going on. And then they begin to question. They go, hey, didn't we see you with Jesus? No, I have no idea what you're talking about. Three times they ask him to the point where he starts to, to, to curse at people. And then the rooster crowed. And instantly, Peter remembered everything. And do you know what he does? He runs off and he weeps bitterly in shame. Why? Because Peter had one hope. He had one Savior. And it was himself. And when he failed, his whole life went with it. Fortunately, the story doesn't end there. Jesus Christ is turned over. He's crucified. Dies, resurrects from the grave three days later. Then we pick up in the Gospel of Mark. I thought this was a really interesting uh, occurrence. When the women arrive to the tomb, Mark chapter 16, verses 5 through 7, the women are going to the tomb the day after the Sabbath. And it says this, it says, When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in white robes sitting on the right side. The women were shocked, but the angel said, Don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Look, this is where he laid his body. And now go and tell his disciples, including Peter. Why not just go and tell the disciples? Wasn't Peter a disciple? You see the difference. Peter has outright denied his Lord and his whole God of self-strength and self-ability has crumbled and Peter feels that he has nothing left. Lord, I'm unworthy to come before you. You always were unworthy to come before him. What's changed? And so the angel says, hey, go tell the disciples and make sure and tell Peter, because that boy's still in. It's not over yet. Why? Because Jesus was never hoping in Peter's ability. When Jesus tells him, Simon, Simon, Satan's looking to sift you like wheat. What is Jesus? Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Jesus' hope was never in Peter to be able to do it. Jesus knew there was only one thing that would sustain Peter's faith. The only object worthy for us to set our hope and fixate it and anchor it, and it is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus abandoned and denied his Lord. And oh, you're absolutely right, Peter. Peter abandoned and denied his Lord. Jesus didn't. Peter 
had every right to then be abandoned and denied, did he not? Punishment fits the crime. And yet, something so peculiar happens when Christ is hanging on a cross crucified. What does he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why? Because Peter was a coward. And Peter abandoned me. And Peter denied me. And he deserves to be abandoned and denied. But you, son, you'll be abandoned and denied so he can always be accepted. What is the object of your hope so large that you won't be shaken? It's that Christ Jesus hung on a cross and suffered the wrath, the justice of God for every sin you've ever committed. That all the penalty and punishment due your rebellion, Jesus Christ soaked up like a sponge so that the wrath of God was satisfied on him. And now what you get in return is all of the blessing and all of the beauty and all of the grace and love and goodness that Jesus Christ earned on your behalf. You know how long I just sit in the back. I feel like I say something along these lines every time I come up here. I just sit in the back and wrestle before I ever even come up here. And you know what one of the biggest wrestling matches is, especially today? I don't know why. Maybe because of the topic. You're not worthy to do this. Like, man, if my hope was fixated on me, then yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm not. But I'm not the one that qualified me to stand up here. Jesus Christ is. I'm not the one that qualifies me to enter the kingdom of heaven and be accepted into the loving kindness of God, Jesus Christ is. Why can, how, can, how can you be unshakable after every fall, after every failure and temptation and sin, knowing that Christ soaked up the wrath for it? Your penalties waived. Justice served. Now you are invited in freely at the cost of the blood of the Son of God. And let me, let me make one point clear really quickly. This, the gospel is the only way that you saying, I am definitely getting into heaven, is not arrogant. Because if you think it's according to your good works, then you think that you've earned it. Which means every good thing that you do is only made, motivated by pride. Right? It's you earning something for what you've done. Or... On the other end, it's you're really scared of getting your skin seared in the end, so you're being as good as you can, purely motivated by fear. But neither is by love. The gospel is the one place where we're so humbled that we realize there's only one way we get access to the Father, and it's through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And Christ on the cross said, it is finished. Which means my sin is finished. It is over. I don't hold to it anymore. Tim Keller says this. He says, unless you believe the gospel, everything you do will be driven by either fear or pride. And let me say this right now. If fear is the object that drives you to be successful, that is very shakable. That is not a good object for hope. If pride 
is the thing that drives you to be successful, that is a very shakable, shakable object to fixate your hope. Because again, one moral blemish and that whole thing is scuffed. Only through Jesus Christ. And Christ came so that you can have unshakable hope. He's delivered to us that gift. What I don't want for you is I don't want you to go through life knowing that one day you're going to die and you're going to stand before God and be like I was in that boxing match. All the what-ifs in the world, I just hope I make it till the end. I don't want you reliant on you. I don't want your hope fixated on you. You are far too small of an object to have your hope fixated on. I would rather your hope be fixated on the largest and most powerful object in all of the universe, the uncreated, omnipotent God. And so let me give you two next steps that are going to sound so simple, but understand how difficult these really are. The first one let go of your good works and lean on Christ's good works. Here's what I mean. I remember years ago asking a guy, are you a Christian? He said, yeah. I said, how? What makes you a Christian? Well, I pray every day and I read my Bible every day. So what you do makes you a Christian. In other words, my good works are what makes me a Christian. But the Bible says that all of your good works are nothing but filthy rags before him. Those aren't something to rely on. Let go of those things. Those are good things to do. They don't get you any earning before God in right standing. Only Christ, who lived a perfect life according to the law. Only Christ, who walked perfectly obedient because you could not. Take to yourself all of Christ's righteousness that he gives you. Romans 5.17 says he gives us the free gift of righteousness. That is right standing with God. Take it. Secondly, let go of your guilt and shame by giving it to Christ. For those of you who you fall, you stumble, you sin, and then you continue on with backlashing and beating as though you're going to pay your own debt because of your wrongdoing, you just feel so unworthy, you have to understand, if you're going on punishing yourself about sin, then why was Christ punished in your place? It doesn't make any sense. It's like you're trying to take Christ down and put yourself up there. If Christ suffered all your shame and all your guilt, give it to him. He volunteered for that. Do you understand how much he loves you? Do not be prideful. Don't say he didn't deserve it. You're right, he didn't deserve it, but he wanted to take it. That's how much he loves you. That he'd take the hell that you deserve. So you never have to go there. Let go of your guilt. Let go of your shame. Give it to Christ. The only way to remove false hope is to remove those shakable objects that you're fixing your hope upon. To where finally, you'll be leaning so heavily on Christ that if he weren't real, you would fall flat on your face. 
but let go of everything else and trust in him alone. That is unshakable hope. Let's pray. Father, how easy it is for us to be overwhelmed and discouraged by the feelings of being unworthy, of being ungodly. But according to Scripture, it's for the ungodly and the unworthy that Christ came to die. And so, Lord, I pray that we celebrate our unworthiness because in it we receive grace upon grace through Jesus Christ who died for our sin, who died for our unworthiness, who died for our ungodliness. Lord, I pray that we don't leave here with any celebration in self, but only in you who loved us so much that you would lay down your life for us. And by your power, you took it up again to lead us into your victory, not our own. So God, let us be like David, that when we boast, it's not in ourselves, but it's in the God of heaven, who's already given us the victory. Let Christ be our boast forever and always, that he would receive all the praise.